0: Welcome to the Girl Gang Conversations, a podcast that's all about connection, sisterhood, and having conversations that matter. I'm your host, Sarah Stars, and every week I speak to inspiring women about the nitty-gritty of how they live with passion and purpose. We dive deep into our journeys, the obstacles we've overcome, our dreams, what's working for us and what isn't. We're totally honest about what we're learning, what our daily rituals look like and what we're struggling with. We don't shy away from the hard stuff and we really go into it all. Spirituality, personal development, magic, routines, career, friendship, relationships, sexuality, and so much more. The most powerful two words in the English language are, me too, and it's my hope that these conversations help us all feel less alone. This isn't about preachy self-help or self-improvement, it's about self-acceptance and talking about the things that matter to us. Hello and welcome to the Girl Gang Conversations episode 58. You can access all of the show notes for this episode at Sarah Stars. that's S-T-A-R-R-S, SarahStars.com slash podcast slash 58. Today's interview is with Alexis Wolfer. Alexis is the founder and editor-in-chief of the empowering online women's lifestyle magazine, TheBeautyBean.com. She's a well-known beauty and lifestyle expert as seen on the Today Show, E! News, The Doctors, and more, and the author of two books, The Recipe for Radiance, Discover Beauty's Best Kept Secrets in Your Kitchen, and Radiant Bride, The Beauty Diet, Fitness, and Fashion Plan for Your Big Day. Additionally, Alexis consults on and invests in early-stage startups with an expertise in female customer acquisition, strategy, public relations, and marketing. I was fascinated to talk with Alexis about the importance of natural beauty, the product she's loving, the intersection of feminism and beauty, and what her journey to self-love has looked like so far. She's not afraid to go deep and talk about the big issues. Alexis, hey, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Um, and I know we're kind of at not opposite ends of the time zone spectrum, but different times of day, so... It's exciting to get to chat with you and share you with all of the listeners. And something that I've been doing recently, so that, you know, we'll get more into your journey and the work that you do in a moment, but just to get a really a sense of what a typical day in your life is, or, you know, maybe there isn't one, but what are those routines or rituals that anchor your day?
1: So I get this question a lot of what my typical work day looks like, and my professional life really varies on the day to day basis, but I do. Always wake up really early. I always drink a big glass of water when I wake up, followed by a big cup of coffee. I always take my dog out for a walk, which I find really grounding. And I always exercise in the morning. Um, so that's kind of like my morning ritual, so to speak. I would love to say that I meditate in there, but that would be a total lie. <laughs> I really try, but <laughs> it really doesn't happen nearly as often as I would like for it to. Um but yeah, that's kind of what my mornings look like. And then from, you know, about eight or nine in the morning on, every day is different. Mm. I think it's so interesting that we all
0: feel, I mean, I, I do, I have a, a regular meditation practice sometimes. And I think it's so interesting that we feel like we have to, because <laughs> it sounds like you've got a lot of activities in there that are really mindfulness based. Like I imagine walking your dog can almost be a meditation, but we think we have to like sit on the pillow and close our eyes and be so zen. I wish. I, think yeah, it's although I
1: have to say I was on this trip this summer with 50 wellness thought leaders and my roommate on this trip, who is like the, one of the most awesome girls I've ever met. She owns a meditation studio in New York and like we were running on like four hours of sleep every night and she would always set the alarm for an extra 20 minutes to be able to meditate in the morning. And I would wake up with her and I would do it with her and like, damn, I felt good. Mm-hmm. And I got back from that trip and I was like, I'm totally going to do this. When I get back home, and I really had the intention of it. I do think having a pet complicates this like alarm goes off and I meditate for 20 minutes ritual because alarm goes off and my dog is like, okay, great, we're getting up. Like, let's <laughs> like let's go outside. Like, here's the plan. And like sitting on a pillow with my eyes closed in this zen moment for 20 minutes is just not going to happen. Um, I do think that I could do a better job of scheduling it in in the afternoons, which is a goal of mine, albeit one that keeps on being pushed off um, in the same way that I schedule all my workouts in the morning. Like I have a time in the morning and, you know, on a Sunday, I figure out like exactly what time I'm going to work out every day. And, you know, it's usually sometime between six and eight in the morning, but I really schedule that into my calendar. And that is an appointment with myself that I do not cancel.
0: And so I'm curious, you said that you get up early every day. Have you always been a morning person or is that something you've cultivated over time?
1: So I think a little bit of both. So I've always been somebody who doesn't require a tremendous amount of sleep on the regular. So that's not to say that I'm someone who can go four hours, you know, always, but I'm definitely good without a lot of sleep. And then I'll have a night here and there where, you know, I'll be asleep at 830. Um, So I think that I've always kind of had that ability. Um, There was a period of time when I had signed a contract in New York where I was hosting TV segments on Channel 11 news, and I used to wake up at 2.30 in the morning. I would get my lines that morning. I would memorize them. I would be picked up at 4.30 with my hair. I had to have hair and makeup already done and ready. Um, And I think just that routine for that year really fostered my love of the mornings. Mm. And I just kind of stuck. Not that I wake up that early anymore, but, you know, I'm usually up between like 5.30 and 6.00. And I love the quiets of the mornings. And I love, especially being someone who lives, I live in Los Angeles now. Um, prior to this, I was in New York for most of my life. And being in a big city where there's a lot of hustle and bustle, particularly in New York, having that early morning time where you walked outside your apartment and the city was quiet, it was such a special moment. And I just really love, I love that.
0: Mm, yeah, I'm really envious of anyone who's either naturally a morning person or needs a little bit less sleep because I need a lot of sleep, kind of at the best of times. And then I've been in this this journey of healing from a period of burnout and quite bad adrenal fatigue, and my you know my nervous system is kind of spent, so I need to sleep a lot. But I used to be, I you know, I really consciously cultivated the habit last year of getting up around six, and I, I totally know what you mean of that really quiet time, like no one in the house is awake. People are in their own homes are probably either just starting to get up or still sleeping. And this, the whole city um, just feels so different. It's really magical.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it so much.
0: So for anyone who hasn't visited the Beauty Bean, can you tell us what inspired <laughs> you to start it and what
1: they can expect from visiting? Right. It's like now they know all about my morning routine and they're like, "What the hell is <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started thebeautybean.com about seven years ago. I have my master's in human rights and gender studies from Columbia University. I had been working in women's magazines previously. I was at Lucky Magazine and then at Stylecaster. Um, and I started the Beauty Bean as a place for women to get all of their lifestyle content in a positive, empowering way. So I think that most women's media is predicated on this idea of we have to make women feel shitty about themselves in order to sell them things, whether that's products or content. And I just vehemently disagree with that as a paradigm. I think that women are smarter than that. I think that women deserve more than that. And I think that women have spending power that they want to utilize to elevate their lives, not to fix them. And so I was like, what does it look like to create a website that covers all the same shit that women's magazines are covering? Like we are not reinventing the content wheel, we are reinventing how we are presenting it. So we're still covering the same, you know, runway fashion trends, um, or like how to DIY a makeup look from a runway, but it's a, here's a look that we saw on the runway. Here's how to DIY it. If you want it, like, don't like it. Cool. Like wanna rock purple lipstick every day, awesome. Like you do you, like we're just giving you the information with which you can make an informed decision as to what is the best choice for you. You're not pretty or not based on whether or not you do this. Same with our fitness content. It's about being fit and healthy and strong. And so yeah, we'll feature like the latest cool workout trend, but it's not about losing weight. It's about, you know, like here's a good way for you to care for yourself, like not into that, cool. You know, like, you do you. Yeah, I love that. And that's
0: what really first drew me to your work and to your site. Um, And I really remember hearing you interviewed uh, somewhere else and the the conversation you're having really around the intersection of feminism and beauty. Because I think a lot of us, or at least for me, when I first kind of got introduced to the idea of feminism and then, you know, I went on to do a lot of activist work, I kind of thought that meant I had to give up lipstick and cute clothes And rather than seeing myself now to be empowered to choose whether or not I wanted to buy into certain things, I thought, oh no, like that's not a a feminist thing to do, which then just like pigeonholes us in a different way. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about your own take on that intersection of
1: beauty and feminism and what that means to you. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is like what lights my soul on fire is this conversation. Um... I think that feminism and beauty are separate but equal verticals in the gendered hemisphere. I don't think that one has to inform the other. I think that you can be a feminist who spends two hours getting ready every morning because it feels good for you. It is perhaps anti-feminist if you're doing it because that's the only way you think you will be loved by others. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with... Any choice that a woman makes that is an informed choice done from a place of self-care. So I look at the, you know, I get a lot of this pushback with regard to the beauty being particularly in feminist communities where, you know, I am a diehard feminist. I have my master's in gender studies. Like, this is what I am so passionate about. And I get a lot of this, like, well, like, aren't you kind of, like feeding this anti-feminist paradigm of women needing to be pretty. And it's like, no, not at all. The idea of the Beauty Bean is to create a space where women get to make choices that make them feel elevated, empowered, and beautiful from the inside out. And like, that is an inside job. And if Mm -hmm. lipstick is something that you think is fun and glamorous, cool, rock it. But like, if you want to show up at the office with your hair wet and not a stitch of makeup on, like, damn girl, you should be just as well respected as the girl who spent an hour getting ready in the morning.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Because if feminism isn't giving us more choice, then what's the point, really?
1: So I think that the ultimate human right is the right to love and respect your own body. And when women don't love and respect themselves, it becomes infinitely more difficult to ask others to respect us two. And I've seen this play out, you know, I worked at a women's empowerment group in East Africa, in Tanzania, I've worked in domestic violence and sexual assault response. And, you know, you see this play out, and that's not to put any blame on the victim or survivor, because that is not at all what I stand by. But I do think that when women are empowered to own and respect and honor themselves, they inherently own and respect and honor other women. And they inherently raise children who own and respect and honor women. And that is like a beautiful paradigm for us to create.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk a lot more about that in terms of, you know, I know you talk a lot about self-love as the ultimate right, human right, and also as this first step to true success. So I'm curious if we can unpack that a little bit more. What does self-love mean to you?
1: Yeah, so for me, a lot of this practice of self love, given my past with an eating disorder, is about honoring my body and being kind to it. And so that means I don't weigh myself. I don't weigh myself at doctor's offices. I don't get on scales ever. I try not to pay attention to, you know, whether my jeans are tight in the morning and I don't let that affect my day. I consciously choose for my self worth not to be determined by my weight or a number on a scale or the size of my pants or anything like that. Um, and that is a daily exercise. It is something that I constantly work on. I think, you know, I have yet to meet a woman who I think has a quote unquote healthy, normal relationship with her body, food, and exercise. I've met a whole lot of women who have two out of three. Mm. Um, and I think for a lot of us, This relationship with food and exercise in our body is something that, you know, I'm 32 and I think our entire lives were taught that beauty is of utmost importance and that it's a very, very small definition of what that is. And so we spend so much time and energy trying to cultivate that instead of owning the beauty that we all inherently have. Um, For me also, self-love is about uh, being, being active and healthy and eating high quality foods and exercising because I love my body, not because I hate it and because I want to be strong and because it feels good and it's fun and it gives me endorphins. And I love to start the day with like a great sweat and it gives me the energy for the rest of the day. Not because I ate a brownie last night and I feel like I need to work that off. Yeah. Um, so like, that's really important to me. Um, Also really honoring, you know, self-love that I think transforms over time and where you are in your life. For me right now, it also looks like a lot of saying no to things and creating space for the things that I want to say yes to. And I have a girlfriend who used to say, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And I really try to honor that. So obviously there are things that come up in life like family obligations, et cetera, that like, by no means should you skip because you don't have like a, you're not pumped up about going. Um, I'm not saying that, but you know, sometimes there are those things that like you get invited to a networking event and you're like, Oh, like I really don't want to go. Like I'm not, I'm choosing not to go to those things.
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. We don't ever, ever give ourselves kind of space. Otherwise, I think we could easily fill up, fill up our lives with things that are kind of, mediocre and then there's never space for the hell yeses to even kind of get in there.
1: Yeah. And I think women in general have this innate sense of like wanting to please others. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I'd say for a few years, I was kind of like, yeah, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no, but I still felt the need to give an excuse or a reason. And so I would get, you know, I work in the beauty industry and I get invited to all these things. And I felt the need to, when, when I didn't want to go to an event to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I'm not gonna be able to make it because... And it's like, I'm swamped at work or, but you know what, like, screw it. Like sometimes I just want to sit on the couch and like watch a TV show and I don't want to get dressed and I don't want to go to this event. And that's not to say that like, of course I give people plenty of, like I say no when I'm invited. It's not that I'm backing out 20 minutes before. Cause I think that's rude. Um, but it is a matter of me being able to reply to an invite and just be like, thank you so much for the invite, but I'm not going to be able to make it. Period. End of story. I don't need to tell you why. I don't need to give an excuse. Like, me wanting to take a bubble bath is reason enough.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I think I hear from so many women who haven't gotten to that place yet, who feel like wanting to take the bubble bath or watch Netflix or, you know, go to sleep early, that somehow that, that makes us selfish. And I think selfish gets a really bad rep, but also, really? you know, most of us have experienced the the flip side of that when we say yes to everything when we're out all the time. And I mean, at least for me and for lots of people, like you can't sustain that pace forever. So you're not going to be your best self for yourself or anyone else. If you're just saying, no. I also
1: think that like when you show up to something like show up and Mm -hmm. be there and be engaged and like be in it. And if you don't have, you know, it's like that, like put the oxygen mask on yourself before on others. Like you can't pour from an empty jug. You know, you need to do what resets you or keeps you feeling grounded. And, like, for me, that means, like, I don't want an event every night to go to, whether that's dinner with friends or, you know, things that by all measures are wonderful, exciting, fun things. Like, I need one night a week where, like, I'm home by myself with my dog and, like, doing whatever I want. Yeah. So honoring that.
0: Yeah. And I think we all have a different balance because like, I probably need four nights a week like that. Right. And like figuring out what that looks like for you is such a healthy self-awareness that I think is a huge part
1: of self-love. Totally. And I think that it's going to vary over the course of your life, over the course of your menstrual cycle, over the course of the seasons. Like maybe when it's cold out, you need more of those nights than when it's the summer. Um, And just kind of being open to those inherent shifts, I think is really important, you know, and you say, like, I think a lot of women struggle with that. Like I've been working in this space for over a decade. I would say only in the last 12 to 18 months, have I gotten to a point where I'm comfortable being like, thank you so much for that invite. I'm not going to be able to make it <laughs> period End." Yeah. As opposed to, you know, for the last eight, I'd say the first four years I was going to everything and I was so burnt out. I didn't even know what burnout meant until I was out of that. Um, and then I had a couple of years where I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm not gonna be able to make it because, and I felt like I needed to justify why I wasn't going to be able to make it. Um, so it's a process, but I do find that like when you are caring for yourself and when self-care is a part of your day-to-day life, you are a Better contributor to society in all other verticals of your life, in your relationships, your friendships, your intimate relationships, your professional life, your contributions to your community, all of it. I love, and it's going to look like something different for other people.
0: Yeah, and I love what you say about there being kind of cycles and transitions when your energy levels or your needs are different. So I think that's a huge thing and something that I didn't recognize for a really long time. Um, you know, I used to be someone who wanted to be out every night of the week and that really worked well for me and filled me up. And it can be kind of jarring if you don't, if you aren't really aware of the seasons and cycles of life, because we're, yeah we can get so out, of touch, so out of touch with them in modern life. Like it feels like you're having this huge personality shift rather than just recognizing that something's natural is occurring and, you know, adjusting course accordingly.
1: Yeah. And I think like evolutionarily, Our lifestyles change dramatically with the seasons. Mm -hmm. You know, a thousand years ago, your day to day activities in the summer were categorically different from your day to day activities in the winter. And so, you know, while that is far less dramatic these days, like there still is that inherent evolutionarily based cyclical change that takes place that we should honor in the same way that, you know, as you start to get better at listening to your body, You tend to notice the foods that you crave are really different as the seasons change, too. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Like most of us, you didn't necessarily um, always live with this self awareness and this sense of self compassion and self love. And I'm curious, (laughs) yeah, wouldn't it be so much better if we all had? But you know, it's a learning process, and I think the journey is really important. But I'm curious whether there was like a pivotal moment, a pivotal shift, something that opened your eyes, like what did that look like for you to kind of start changing course, whether it was really drastic or really slight at the time?
1: You know, I think it's like, this goes back to like that Steve Jobs, Stanford commencement address that if you haven't seen it, you should Google. Um, But he says like, only looking back that the dots connect. And that's how I've seen everything in my life. So if you had told me 15 years ago that I'd be running an online women's magazine and that I would be on television talking about beauty and lifestyle products and writing women's lifestyle books. Like I would have told you that you were batshit crazy. I had every intention 15 years ago. I probably thought I was going to work in finance 10 years ago. I thought I was going to work in, continue to work in international human rights and development, um, probably public policy. Um, It's just, it, It was never this like major aha moment, but there are like a few things. So I say like the first one was I went away to college. I have three older brothers. They're all in finance. My dad's in finance. I like for sure thought I was going to go into finance. I went to college. I was studying economics and I stumbled into an intro to women's studies class as an elective and like, fuck man, that rocked my world. (laughs) And I remember calling home and I was like, I'm going to switch my major to women and gender studies. And my parents were like, okay, <laughs> like, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, not sure, but I'll figure it out. And they were like, oh, all right. And my parents have always been like super supportive, but like of my siblings, I am definitely the one who's always taken the path less traveled and it's hilarious overhearing my parents on the phone or something because they'll be talking to their friends and they'll you know I know that the question was oh like what's Alexis up to and they'll be like we are so proud of Alexis and it's like Alexis what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't really get it which I love but they're so supportive so I think that was my first pivot I think my second pivot was going and working in Tanzania after college. Another thing that my family thought I was like beyond nuts to do, but I went by myself to East Africa. I lived there for four months. I worked at an NGO with Maasai women who had been widowed by HIV AIDS, helping them apply for microfinance loans and sell their jewelry to tourists. And, you know, just like generally supporting this community. I came back to study human rights at Columbia. I really thought that I was going to work in, international human rights, female genital mutilation, domestic violence, rape as a weapon of war. these like really heavy topics. I had had summer internship experience at Condé Nast at women's magazines, kind of cause I thought it was fun and I wanted to live in New York in the summers in college. And, you know, it was relatively light and easy. I remember calling there um, to some of my contacts there and being like, Hey, like, you know, I'm in grad school, I'm studying human rights. And it's just like so fucking heavy. Um, Do you think that there's, like, a part-time gig where I could come in just, like, a couple afternoons a week and help out? Like, I could really use something just, like, light and easy to kind of balance this all out. And they were like, yeah. And so I was working at Condé Nast while I was in grad school, and it was at that moment that I really understood, A, like, the power that media has on women, and the stories that women are being told about how they should feel about themselves, what they need, what they want. I also saw this idea of self love as being a human right. And if you don't have this love and respect for yourself, that it's really hard to fight for the other human rights. Mm. Um, and that that's not to say that the other ones aren't sometimes seemingly bigger, but they're not more important. Um And so I wrote my graduate school thesis on women's magazines and their influence on body image and eating disorders and the corporate social responsibility of media to do a better job of talking to women in a positive, empowering way. Because I think when women feel good about themselves, and this goes from like, you know, the high society woman who seems to have access and resources to everything to the woman living in poverty in East Africa, who's HIV positive, both of those women equally benefit from a paradigm that is centered on self-love, where they are then more active members of their societies. They are more likely to have access to education. They're more likely to delay pregnancy. Um, they're more likely to have financially stable careers. They. Are more likely to have bigger lives, and I wanted to be a part of that. Does that yeah. answer your question at yeah. all?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> um, that's. I love that we have somewhat similar backgrounds in that respect. I also was studying international development and pictured a very different life for myself that was a lot more, you know, on the ground in other countries or really policy focused. Okay.
1: Um, and it's interesting. Like at this point, like I've been doing this for about ten years. My my heart is starting to be pulled back in that direction, Mm. um, and trying to kind of figure out what that looks like. And so for now it's things that I'm volunteering with, or I'm really involved in Hillary Clinton's campaign here in the States. And, um, you know, what, like, is that just something that I'm going to do on the side? Is that something that I will transition into doing more of on a professional side? I don't know, but just like continuing to honor these shifts and these transitions. And, you know, it doesn't, just because you've done something doesn't mean it's the only thing you can do. Yeah. I also think why I like my least favorite question ever is like, what's your five-year plan? Or <laughs> what's your 10-year plan? Because like I think that if you had asked me 10 years ago what my plan was, it would have never taken me to where I where I am now. And I'm so grateful for the experiences that I've had and for the career that I've had and the life that I've built. And, you know, I think that sometimes we get too wrapped up in the this is what i thought it was supposed to be or this is what i thought i wanted and if you don't want that anymore that's cool and you get to shift that and like you don't have to do something just because you always thought that that's what you would do
0: totally yeah and I, a lot of the times the most interesting things come from those shifts and the fact that you can like you say you can shift back like i moved as well like I wasn't doing nearly as much and I'm still not doing nearly as much activism stuff as I used to do. And I can feel, you know, moving to another country, I felt like really not a part of the political system and didn't really have my feet in how I might want to get involved. But now that I've been here for a few years, I can can feel that being drawn back to some of that. And it's interesting. Um, While I'm sure it will be different than what I originally pictured as the trajectory for my life, not having had too firm a grip on the wheel means that a lot of wonderful things
1: have gotten to happen. I'm so happy how, it, how it's unfolded. Yeah, I just think that when you have this like really set idea of like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this, sometimes other opportunities come up and you say no to them because they're not on your plan. But sometimes those other opportunities are like way better and you should totally do those things. Yeah. So, like, don't turn your back on something just because it's not aligned with what you thought you wanted to do. And I think those plans can
0: actually stop us from like really being a full – a full human being really, right? Like, we're like, oh, that kind of opportunity is not, like, I'm not the kind of person who does that rather than recognizing that, like, well, that's actually just not in my plan. Like, you're not letting yourself see the full breadth of who you are and who you could be because you're so attached to this, like, very specific linear
1: outcome. Totally agree.
0: So I'm curious, you know, you talked about the fact that you were dealing with an eating disorder when you were younger and that some big shifts happened to lead you more um in the direction of the work you're doing now. And I'm curious what resources or practices or mindsets were really useful when you were starting out on the self-love journey or even, you know, as you've gone along?
1: Um, So like in the, the, this, and by no means an eating disorder expert or medical professional. So I just want to put that off the bat because I do think that there's a really strong case to be made for therapy and antidepressants. Um, So that, that is that aside. Um, for me, it was really important to have conver- tough conversations with the people closest to me about not engaging and talk about other women and their bodies, their looks, their appearances in any capacity. Um, and that's something that I still try to cultivate. So I don't really like I don't really read magazines that talk about women's bodies or like a who wore it best. Or you know, I don't engage in those conversations with my friends. I I'm uncomfortable when somebody comments on somebody else's body or their weight, or even if it's seemingly positive. Like, I think, I think this is where like, I think it's been really interesting having these conversations with my parents over the years, particularly at the beginning of my recovery process. But like, having that conversation of like, I need you not to comment on people's appearance, period. Mm-hmm. And my dad would be like, she looks great. Like I'm being positive, I'm being kind. And I'm like, but the flip of that is that she looks better than she did before. And in my head, I'm like, what was wrong before? Or like when you walk in, somebody's like, oh my gosh, she looked great, did you lose weight? And it's like, first of all, losing weight and, being, and looking better are not necessarily the same thing. Like, let's be really clear on that. Um, and the second of all is this idea of like, oh my gosh, Does that mean that I didn't look as good before? Like if I look better, five pounds less, would I look even better five pounds less than this? And it just like put me in this like spiral of self-destruction. And so really disengaging from those conversations. And obviously like part of that is no longer like not engaging those conversations might mean that can't be friends with people that only talk about those things. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is having to have tough conversations with the closest people in your life about your desire or need for them not to have those conversations in front of you. And it really shifts the way that people talk and see the world. And I, I think that that's really fucking cool. Um, for me, it also means throwing away a scale. Um, there was a period of time, I like, at this point, I'm not, I don't feel compelled to ever get on a scale. Um, but there was a period of time when I would be traveling a lot for work, and you would get to a hotel, and there would be a scale in the bathroom. And I would, like, my first phone call when I would get to a room would be to the housekeeping department if they could come and get it out of the room um, because I knew that it being there would like taunt me. So not weighing myself. Um, yeah, I think those things.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'd love that you brought up that therapy and antidepressants are a big part of that journey. Cause I think they sometimes get stigmatized in the spiritual community and like, let's be real. They save lives. They've definitely saved mine. And, um, I don't think that there should be any shame around talking about that.
1: No, um, yeah, yeah. This is probably actually the first time I've ever even mentioned them in the context of an interview. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Um, but yeah, I was on on antidepressants for probably six to, six to eight months at the beginning of my eating disorder recovery process, and I think that they were groundbreaking. Mm. It was like the little extra bump that I needed.
0: Yeah, exactly. Taking that edge off so that you can actually do that other work that you know that creates those really yeah. profound shifts absolutely and I was
1: in therapy for a long time and that was extraordinarily helpful um yeah I don't I don't think that there should be any stigma around either of those things and I do think that it's like more women had these conversations like I find that a lot of the times when people don't know my past or my history and I start talking to them about it or being open about it, they're like oh my gosh like I'm so glad that you said that I had a similar experience and I don't have anybody to talk to about and I'm like damn, like what would the world look like if women all showed up and had these authentic, honest conversations about like the demons in our heads and we could disempower them by being open about them.
0: Yeah, and I think like we think of our demons as being really unique to us. Like, oh my God, it's because I'm fucked up or I'm like not good enough or, you know, I'm always disappointing people that I have all of these, you know, this stuff going on in my head. And if when you start to talk to other people about it and you realize, Oh my god! Like they all have those voices too, and they're saying almost the same thing, even if they're saying it in different triggering ways that are specific to them. Like it's so totally. good to know we're not alone in it. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think like just as women in general, we play a lot of this like self-blame game. I was at a dinner last night actually, and a girl was talking about how she had dated this guy, and you know, they, she had had a sexual trauma in her past, and she had told him about it. And, like they slept together, and then he kind of disappeared and she was like, I shouldn't have told him about my trauma. And I was like, that has nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. Like this has nothing to do with you. Like this is something like that is on him. Like you do you like the good riddance. Yeah. You know, but I think that's so often we sit here and have this whole story in our head of like, he didn't call me back because I did something wrong or, you know, I didn't get that job because there's something wrong with me. And I think we really need to shift that mindset and like definitely easier said than done. But like a lot of the time it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> like no. We're so self-centered in the way that we view the world. And it's like, it's not all about you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love the book, The Four Agreements and the, the one agreement yes. being not to take things personally. Because yes. if you just think how differently, like, you know, you could say something or be in a certain situation with various different people and they could all have such different reactions to you within the context of that conversation or situation. And it really has so much to do with what they're projecting onto you and the situation and not to do at all with your worth as a human being or even what you've said or done.
1: Yeah, mo- exactly. Yes. I love that book too.
0: <laughs> so shifting gears quite a bit, you're the natural skincare guru, obviously. So I definitely wanted to talk to you a little bit about that since it's not something that I've um, discussed with anyone on the podcast before. And so I'm curious just to hear a little bit about, you know, why is natural skincare so important to you?
1: So to backtrack a little bit over the course of my career as a beauty editor, I kept on seeing all these new beauty products come across my desk and they would be like, now with blueberry extract or now with probiotics. And I'd be like, this seems like we're kind of like watering down this like singular ingredient and putting it in a lotion and now calling it natural or better, whatever. But like, what are we really getting at here? And I became really interested in this overlap of food and beauty. And I write this in my first book, which is, so my first book is called The Recipe for Radiance and it's a beauty cookbook. So it's half recipes that promote beauty from within and half recipes for topical homemade remedies, all using food. And so, as part of my eating disorder history, I saw so profoundly how what you eat or don't eat really affects your beauty. And I say in the first book, like you know we are what you are what you eat, and you don't want to be sugar free jello. <laughs> like I think that it's like really important that we see this overlap between how we feed our bodies and what that creates in our in our cells and our hair, et cetera. Um, and then by the same token, our skin is our largest organ. So if you're concerned about what you're putting in your body, you should be equally concerned about what you're putting on your body. And so as over the course of my life, I've become more and more aware of the power of food and how important it is to honor your body with healthy food choices. And that's not to say that like you shouldn't eat ice cream sometimes because like you should, but like, the majority of the time you should make sure that you're getting enough water and green leafy vegetables and, you know, vitamins and all of these like wonderful things that support our health from the inside out. But like the counter of that is being conscious of what we're exposing ourselves to always. So what are the ingredients that I'm using to clean my house and what are the products that I'm putting on my skin? And as I learned more and more about beauty products and I saw how many beauty products were putting in these buzzwords, but they were kind of whittling it down. I realized that, you know, the most powerful skincare ingredients out there are the ones in our kitchen. But we just have this idea that we want our skincare products to last for, you know, four years in a hot, steamy bathroom, whereas you don't have that same level of expectation for the blueberries in your refrigerator. Um, And so being more conscious of the choices that you're making or going into your kitchen and using, like, real natural ingredients for your skin is a really... It's really like the best the best solution for your skin because you do absorb everything that you put on your body.
0: Mm, mhm. I think that was such a shocking revelation when I had that one and I'm still definitely not perfect when it comes to choosing cosmetics and skincare products. But... No,
1: and like I don't think that like this isn't about being perfect in the same way that I think you should like eat ice cream or brownies mm. or candy or whatever it is like your thing sometimes. I also think that like there is a time and a place for beauty products that have chemicals. Like Chemicals aren't necessarily bad. I also think that there's a lot of this like, oh, we're now paraben free, but what they're using instead as a preservative is just as bad. So I think people need to be really conscientious of that. Um, But I really think it's about being an informed consumer. So like the Beauty Beans philosophy is never, like we only cover things that are organic and natural and healthy and clean and edible because that's not realistic for a lot of women. But I don't ever want a woman to be using a product for 20 years that she doesn't realize is you know potentially harmful because of whatever chemicals. If that's a, an informed decision, because the convenience of it, the results of it, etc., are worth it for you, no judgments. Like you make the best choice for you and your life. Um, but I just want to make sure that everybody is an informed consumer. So I know
0: there's the um, is it the EWF skincare database, which can be really yeah. helpful for finding out what's in the products and you know their kind of um, relative rating for the safety of the products. I'm curious, like, what other ways would you recommend women,
1: well, people, educate
0: themselves about the products they're putting on their skin?
1: So, like, in general, I feel like skincare ingredients should read sort of like a food label ingredient. Like, if you can't pronounce the ingredient, like, probably not the best choice. Um, there are certainly exceptions when we're talking about chemistry terms um, and just becoming a little bit more aware of those. But I'd say like the best choice, or like the thing that I usually recommend to women is like find a retailer that you really that you really trust, or find a brand that you have vetted, um, and kind of stick with those. That makes it a whole lot easier than you having to become a chemistry expert. Um, But a lot of the more natural, organic brands on the market now are not merely listing the chemical term for an ingredient. They're also putting in parentheses what it is. Mm. So I found that to be really useful. Um, But yeah, I also think like simpler is better. I use a lot of oils that I buy at the grocery store on my skin. Um, I use a lot of homemade beauty remedies that I make in my kitchen or things like apple cider vinegar or full fat yogurt for a face mask or, you know, a lot of these, food-based things are really not only are they cleaner and more natural, they're actually more effective. The reason why they're not in our beauty products is because they don't have the shelf life that we demand of our beauty products.
0: Yeah. I started making a cleansing facial oil that I found on the beauty bean and I'm absolutely loving it. My skin mm. is so happy. Oh, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yay. So and then be- I would also say like for women, like pick your poison. So, you know, if there's something like if you wear foundation every day, like, And that's going on all of your pores on your face every day. Like it's probably worth doing some research into the best brands there. It's probably worth spending a little bit more money on something that is clean and natural and organic. Like if it's like a blue eyeshadow that you wear like once a year, like who cares? Right. You know, like go for the cheap stuff. It's once, it's once in a while, no big deal. I feel similarly like the organic natural mascaras aren't particularly well-performing. The ones that are well-performing are a bloody fortune. <laughs> um, like, I think that's crazy. Like, I don't think it's a big deal. Like, it's not going in your eye. It's not on your pores. like, it's, it's mascara. Like, buy your drugstore mascara. Like, cool. But when we're talking about your, like, serums and your creams, like, I care a lot more about the cleanliness of those.
0: And so what are some of your favorite products or companies?
1: So um, I don't know if they ship to the UK, but there is a company out here in Los Angeles called the Detox Market. Oh, I've
0: heard and of them. I don't do know if they
1: a do really phenomenal job of curating beauty brands. Um, I would highly recommend, like, even if they don't ship to you, like, just going on there and looking at the brands that they carry, because um, they do a really phenomenal job of, you know, figuring out what the healthy good things are from a makeup perspective. I think RMS is phenomenal. Keir Weiss, I think has an incredibly performing makeup line. It's expensive, but like my mom could give two shifts about something being natural and organic and clean. And she uses their foundation because she thinks it's the best performing. Um, it's more pricey, but again, like this is something that you're putting on your skin every day. Um, I think well people is really great. Um, they have some really good products, um, from a skincare perspective, I've been really liking, um, May Lindstrom. Um, they have, um, a blue cocoon healing balm. That's phenomenal. Um, Cypress with a K is a really great like serum and oil line, but like go to your grocery store and you buy a tub of raw coconut oil. It's like $25 for a tub, the size of like a jar of peanut butter. And it's going to last you for like six years and you can do a whole lot with that.
0: And I'm curious, do you change your skincare routine throughout the month or the year? Like as your skin is changing? Yeah, really?
1: Um, Yeah. Um, I think that the biggest mistake that women make in beauty is, you know, finding something that they love and bulk ordering it and using it for 20 years for a few reasons. The first is that, Unlike men, our skin changes over the course of our monthly cycles, in addition to our skin changing based on the seasons, the climates, et cetera, um, our age, et cetera. Um, I also think, and I'm going to, the best analogy I can give is like, I can make you a really healthy kale salad with like kale and avocado and walnuts and blueberries and hemp seeds, say like, that is like a damn healthy lunch. If you ate that salad for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a year, you would be really nutrient deficient in something because as healthy as that is, it doesn't have everything. And it's kind of the same when we talk about topical beauty products, it's impossible to put all skincare oils in a single jar. And so, you know, it's a good idea to mix up your skincare, even if you're not an expert at looking in the mirror and determining what your skin needs in any given moment, it's a good idea to switch it up or, you know, buy a different brand of that vitamin C serum or, you know, switch, switch the products out with regularity just so that you're exposed to other ingredients that are beneficial to your skin. Um, The second thing is that like our skin does really change definitely seasonally. And so being aware of those changes and whether or not you're quote unquote good at noticing the early signs of that, just kind of, preemptively noticing how the weather is starting to change. So like, I've been talking to a lot of women now and they're like, Oh my gosh, like my skin is so dry because it's gotten colder. What should I do? And I was like, well, like next time, start increasing your moisture like a month before the weather starts to change because that'll help to prevent that period of transition that kind of always rattles us.
0: Mm, That's so interesting and fun to start experimenting with. I think.
1: Yeah, I also think that like instead of this like routine of like every night I use this this cleanser and I use this I mean cleansers are kind of like whatever, like you can use the same cleanser forever, but like and then I put on the same serum and the same moisturizer and the same eye cream, like start to really like take that moment of like looking in the mirror and being like, Where's my skin at? And like maybe my skin today isn't dry and maybe I don't need that moisturizer. Or maybe my skin is looking much more dehydrated and I need to up the ante on my moisturizer. Yeah. Another one more
0: way to be mindful throughout our day.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean like without going crazy because I don't think that like, this is by no means an invitation for you to start dissecting every pore on your face before you go to bed.
0: Totally. Or thinking that you have to buy every single product (laughs) tomorrow, (laughs) which is sometimes the obsession that I'll go into. And
1: like, I actually really think that like a jar of coconut oil does, most people a whole lot of good it's like the best waterproof eye makeup remover it is a great moisturizer it's antibacterial and antimicrobial so it's great for people who have acne prone skin it has lauric acid in it which helps to gently exfoliate um it's like you can really get like a lot of bang for your buck in that tub and that can really replace a lot of your products so like this is not me saying that you need more stuff this is me saying to choose more wisely
0: yeah, we've got a jar of coconut oil in the kitchen in the bathroom and in the bedroom. Like, it is a wonder.
1: Yeah. It's a wonder product. Yeah. Like, I think it's really phenomenal. And, like, yeah, if you want to start experimenting and adding some, like, rose oil to your coconut oil or some jojoba or frankincense, or, you know, you can start experimenting and having some fun with it, but, like, you don't need to do that. You can really just start small. I also think that, like, the best beauty product is the one that you actually use. So, Instead of having a bathroom full of $10 creams that you don't like, I'd much rather you see you go out and buy like a great quality, like the Mae Lindstrom Blue Cocoon Bomb. It's a fortune, but like, it's amazing. And you'll have one product that does a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so like kind of just being like a little bit more conscientious of where you're spending your money and being a little bit less of like I find a lot of women that have like sticker shock over high quality beauty products but when you realize how many other things you won't need to buy it ends up being quite a bargain
0: yeah that's such a good point when you only need a couple of things
1: yeah yeah
0: so I've got a couple of questions before we wrap up that I ask everyone and the first one is when it comes to your own personal development what are you working on learning or implementing right now
1: So I'm really working on this meditation thing. So I'm actually going on a meditation retreat next weekend to, I'm going to Aspen, Colorado on a Vedic meditation retreat, which is nothing that nothing like anything I've ever done. Um, I'm happy to report back to you after to let you know. Um, But I would really like to have a more consistent meditation practice. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this, of this interview that, you know, in this period of time when I was traveling with this girl who was meditating every morning, I really felt the. I really felt the effects, and I really want to call that into my life. So I'm working on that.
0: Amazing. And so, what were the effects of meditation for you? Since there's so many styles and so many kind of ways to, I don't know, take it. I up? just
1: felt like for being on like zero sleep and like nonstop movement, I felt so energized. It was like better than having a cup of coffee when we would do it. Um, I was sleeping well. I felt grounded. I felt present in my interactions. I didn't feel this incessant need to be checking my phone and my email and Twitter and Instagram and, you know, all of that shit. Like I just felt, I felt more connected. Um, and I'm hoping that I can continue to explore that and make that a regular part of my daily practice.
0: And so for this one, it could be as serious or as frivolous as you like. What's one thing that you're obsessed with these days that's making your life better?
1: Hmm. Um, I've been really obsessed with Tracy Anderson's workouts. Oh. Um, she does like dance cardio and weight training classes. And like, I am not a dancer, like I love to dance, but like, do not have a skill set in that space. Um, and I've been having so much fun in the dance classes. Um, so I've been like really into that. Um, this is also like super weird, but I'm really obsessed with like the pH levels of water.
0: Oh, uh, tell me more about that.
1: <laughs> I mean, I could talk about this forever. I think there's like a really profound difference when you're drinking at least slightly alkaline water versus slightly acidic water. Like Most water falls around a seven. But the difference between like a bottled water that's like a 6.8 versus a bottled water that's like a 7.8 is categorically different. And I think you'll notice a huge difference in your body. And there was like a period of time when I had gotten like really crazy about it and I was calling water boards in cities that I was traveling in about the tap water and you know, I got a little nuts about it. (laughs) And so is there anything you can
0: do about it? Like are those charcoal filters helpful? Like what do you, what do you do?
1: Um, yeah. So I think like the first thing is just like figuring out like what your tap water is and you can buy strips to test. You can test your own pee. Um, you can kind of go like as batshit crazy in this as you want to. Um, but just like, and that's not to say like drinking only alkaline water, like the high pH water that you can buy at the supermarket. That's like a pH of like eight and plus is not a good idea for that to be your exclusive water source because it's harder for it to assimilate into your body and it can actually lead to dehydration if you're drinking too much of it um but you know just like I notice a difference I'm traveling places where the water levels are below a seven that like my stomach feels a little off my digestion's a little bit off um so yeah I'm really into that too (laughs) that's really
0: interesting I've never heard someone say that before (laughs) so as we wrap up how can people who feel drawn to you support your work
1: Um, so you can visit thebeautybeam.com. Um, that's where you can find almost everything that I'm up to. Um, and then both of my books are available, um, online and it's, they're sold in the UK also actually. Um, so the first one's called the recipe for radiance and it's a beauty cookbook. And the second one is called radiant bride. And it is kind of everything a girl needs to get from engagement to honeymoon, looking and feeling her best without going crazy.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode at sarahstars.com slash podcast slash 58. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. I know everyone on every podcast you've ever listened to has said that, but it really makes such a huge difference in helping me to make big things happen with this podcast and to reach more people who can benefit from these conversations. You can write whatever you want in the review, so why not let me know what you're obsessed with lately or who you'd like me to interview next. And I promise it only takes one or two minutes max. And if you'd like to continue the conversations that we have on the show, please join us in Girl Gang HQ. It's our private Facebook group. So you can just type Girl Gang HQ into the search bar on Facebook and request to join. I'll approve you as soon as possible. It's really a space to continue the kind of real talk that we have here on the podcast and just to have real conversations about what's going on in our lives, the things that matter to us, It's a place to get support, to support one another. It's really, really beautiful. Such a wonderful community that's grown up around the show, and I hope you'll join us there. Next week's interview is such a special one. Emily Nagoski is the New York Times bestselling author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. She has a PhD in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University, and a master's degree in counseling with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. She has been a sex educator for over 20 years. Come as you are absolutely changed my life and my relationship to my sexuality. It's a must read in my opinion. Emily and I talked about so much, including the big myths that are damaging so many women's relationships to their sexuality, why everyone's sexuality is actually totally normal, yes, even yours and the thing that really bugged her about Fifty Shades of Grey. Until then, grab your girl gang and have a conversation that matters.